You have your outline there in front of you. Psalm 4, Evening Confidence for the Stressed and the Overwhelmed. Anybody relate to that title? (laughs) I came up with it, so I guess I must be stressed or overwhelmed too. Yeah, Evening Confidence for the Stressed and the Overwhelmed. Follow with me. Um, as we begin with the title, it is a psalm of David. And look at the very beginning of Psalm 5. Do you see the heading of Psalm 5, how it says, for the choir director? See that there? And then do you see the next, for the flute accompaniment? Now, this is kind of a whole technical issue, but I think that should be the conclusion of Psalm 4. That's why we did it to the flute, and I wrote a little write-up on that. And if you want to know more, Jeff, I'm confused by that, I'll email that to you. Um, But Habakkuk 3 is kind of the biblical proof for that, Habakkuk 3, verse 19. But but I, I give you that because I believe that the headings are inspired. I believe they're part of the text of Scripture. So, Psalm 4, with all that said, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O sons of men, how long will my honor become a reproach? How long will you love what is worthless and aim at deception? Selah. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly man for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Tremble and do not sin. Meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. Selah. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and trust in the Lord. Well, many are saying, who will show us any good? Lift up the light of your countenance upon us, O Lord. You have put gladness in my heart more than when their grain and new wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. And then the conclusion, for the choir director, for the flute accompaniment. Nicholas Ridley was an Englishman who supported and believed and preached the authority of the Bible. He preached justification by faith alone. He believed that Jesus Christ was the only way of salvation. He alone was the head of the church. And he was hunted. And he was found. And he was tried by Bloody Mary in 1555. Nicholas Ridley, along with his friend Hugh Latimer, they were tried, they were convicted as guilty, and they were sentenced to be burned as their form of execution. On the night before, Nicholas Ridley would be brought into the public to be burned at the stake, Ridley's brother. His brother offered to spend the last few hours of the night with him, to to, to comfort him and to be with him and to help him along for the final hours before he would die. And Nicholas Ridley denied it. And he said, no. And here's what he said, quote, because Psalm four, verse eight affirms, I will lay me down in peace. 
and I will take my rest. For it is you, O Lord, only that causes me to dwell in safety. Now, I don't know about you, but the night before my execution, to say, I'm just going to lay down and I'm going to sleep well. Because God allows and causes me to dwell in safety. Boy, I want that kind of confidence. I want that kind of courage. I mean, in the overwhelming and in the stressful moments when, when you're being slandered and lied about and when there are false people who are committing idolatry and self-loving enemies of Christ and they're seeming to conquer and they're coming after you and they're slandering you behind your back. What do you do and how do you cope? How do you pray? How do you live? How do you endure that kind of life? How do you sleep well and have evening confidence when all of the stresses of life seem to just squeeze you from every side? You ever been there? I mean, it's not like one thing coming against you, but it feels like from every direction, you're just stressed out. You're overwhelmed. It's too much to bear. Well, that's how David felt as well. How do you go to bed and sleep at night when people are after you, when you're overwhelmed, when you feel stressed? What do you do? Nearly every commentator calls Psalm 4 the evening prayer. They call it the evening prayer because of verse 8. In peace, I will lie down and I will sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. And I called it the evening confidence for the stress because I want you to look at verse 1 with me. Notice in verse 1, David prays, Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness, for you have relieved me in my distress. Well, it could be translated stress. It could be translated, I'm in a tight situation. Literally, the Hebrew means you're being squeezed from every side. It's like you take a water bottle and you squeeze it and everything comes out. You just feel like you've got nothing left to give. You, you feel like life is just taking it out of you. And yet God, in his grace, has relieved David. God has given him room to breathe. Now, you know, and I know, that our world is very quick to acknowledge we have the answers for coping with stress. Doesn't the world say that? Leave the room and go to a new place might be one way of coping with stress. People in the world might say, do breathing exercises or meditate, which for them is not filling your mind with biblical truth. Maybe the world might say, watch something funny and that will relieve you of all stress. Or do physical exercise or get a massage. Sounds good. Or a hand massage. Well, that, that sounds good, but that's not going to get to the root problem of relieving and dealing with the stress of life. The world has answers, but God's way is better. God's way is different than the world's way, and God's way is better. And child of God, beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, 
I want you to hear this tonight because how often do we say, I I feel stressed out. I feel overwhelmed. I feel like I've got too much in my life. What do you do? How do you have evening confidence when you are stressed? What do you need? You see it in your outline. It's very simple. It's not all that profound. You say, Jeff, I could have preached this sermon. I know this outline. Number one, you and I need prayer. Number two, we need perseverance. And number three, we need perspective. Let's look at David. Let's look at how David is going to deal with the hard times in his life and how he's going to have confidence in God. In verse one, number one, what do you need? Prayer. We need prayer. You know that. But we need to re-remind ourselves of that because in the moment of stress, sometimes that's the last place that we go. Verse 1, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Think of prayer like this. Prayer is what strips the soul naked before the all-seeing God. You don't need to protect yourself. You don't need to pretend to be righteous. You don't need to come to God and pretend like you've got everything in line and in order in life. No, no, no. You come to God in prayer humbly, and you come to God openly, and you come to God eagerly, and you come to God believingly as well. You can come to God sweetly in prayer and frequently as well. You come to God in prayer in the difficult moments when you feel weak. And sometimes you're afraid to acknowledge your weakness before men, but before God, we say, Lord, I'm weak. I can't handle this. It's too much. I'm overwhelmed. I'm stressed. Now, in the prayer, I think in your outline, you have three sub-headings there, little words. Number one, notice the prayer is urgent. Notice all of the imperatives, verse one. Answer me when I call. At the end of verse one, be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Three urgent commands. God is not so much concerned with you having long prayers as much as he is, you having prayer with the right heart. It can be a short prayer. It can be an earnest prayer. It can be a brief command. Help me, Lord. I'm overwhelmed. God, be gracious to me. Second, not only is the prayer urgent, it's relational. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. What is David doing? Here's what David is doing. He knows his Bible. He knows his Bible and David is saying, I know that God's righteousness is mine. Yes, he's my defender, but God has imputed his own very righteousness to me through faith. Why? Because God did it with Abraham, Genesis 15. You believe and it's credited to you as righteousness. This is what opens the door to full access to God. Abraham believed in the Lord, and it was credited to him 
as righteousness. Or 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30, but by God's doing, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness. What is David doing? He's acknowledging God. My salvation, my righteous standing is only in you. In you. What a great relational way to pray. God, you're, you're my savior. You're my righteousness. I come before you standing in the righteousness of another. I am complete in Christ. It's urgent. It's relational. And his prayer third is honest. It's very honest. He says in verse one, you have relieved me in my distress. Literally, I've been squeezed on every side. The, the life juice has been, has been just sucked out of me. Lord, be gracious and hear me. And you have, you have, you have put me in the state of relief. I love James chapter 5, verse 13, when James writes and he says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone suffering? Let him pray. Because later on, James said, the effective prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. Christian, when you feel stressed, you need prayer. Second, you need perseverance. Now, in verses 2 to 5, th- th- let me give you the setting, and then I'm going to sort of give more of the immediate context here, because the setting is important. It's not going to make sense unless you get the setting. David is the king of Israel when he's writing this, and many are rising up against him. And if you look at verse 2, it'll say in your Bible, O sons of men, in the Hebrew, It's referring very specifically to people of rank, people of power, people of authority. These are not just the ordinary people. These are like the political usurpers. These are the men of authority and power and position. David is going to rebuke them. That's the context. David is the king, and he's reproving, almost counseling. I don't know about the word counsel. Maybe he's reproving them while counseling his own heart to rest in God. Now, maybe the historical setting could be the coup of Absalom. That could be it. Maybe the context are the curses of Shimei. Or maybe the context would be the treachery of Ahithophel and his wicked counsel. But whatever the context might be, the text doesn't say, there are people of rank, people of position, people of authority, and David is speaking to the enemies and he's chiding them. He's rebuking them. He's calling them idolaters. Why? Because when you're opposing David as the king of Israel, you're opposing David's God. I think... There's a very helpful lesson here. David doesn't revile the slanderers or his enemies. He warns them and he calls them to repentance. In fact, in our verses, David is going to evangelize them. 
I mean, he's going to call them to believe on the Lord, to not sin, to turn away from their wicked ways. David is going to speak to them and reprove them for their worthless lies and their wicked actions that are aimed at God's anointed king. Maybe a New Testament parallel might be found in 2 Timothy chapter 2 when Paul tells Timothy, you need to be kind and patient with gentleness. Correct those who are in opposition if God might grant them repentance. Or maybe in Titus chapter 1 when Paul tells Titus that the rebellious men, the empty talkers, the deceivers, they have to be silenced in the church. You, you got to rebuke those who have power, but they're speaking lies. David is not wimpy. He's courageous. And yet, even in the suffering times, he perseveres with confidence in God. Now, what does David say? Now, with all of that in your mind as the setting, there are seven imperatives. This is the rebuke of David to the enemies. Verse 2, O sons of men, how long will my honor become a reproach? How long are you going to love what is worthless and aim at deception? Selah, why are you after me with your lies? You're you're living for what is worthless. You're aiming at deception. You're, You're reproaching my honor as the king that God has appointed. He's chastising them. Verse 3, here's the first rebuke. You need to know that the Lord has set apart the godly man for himself. You need to know that. God is not interested in those of power and authority who are going to usurp and take the throne from King David. No, no, no. You need to know that God has set apart the godly, the pious, the holy man. For himself. The second rebuke is this in verse 4 tremble, tremble. Maybe one of your translations might have be angry. The idea here is to quake and to tremble with such fear that you stop sinning as a result of that. David is saying you need to tremble before Almighty God. That's the idea. Sometimes the the English translations might render it, be angry and do not sin. Paul will mention that in Ephesians later. It's such an anger that brings a trembling. It's It's a rage. Don't sin. You need to tremble with fear before the dreadful majesty of God. That's what David is saying to the enemies. You need to tremble before God. Third, and you need to not sin. Verse four, tremble and do not sin. Maybe another way to put it, repent. Repent. He's exposing his enemies and he's calling them, stop your sinning. Stop your rebuking of me, God's king. You need to repent of your evil way of life. The fourth command in verse four, Meditate in your heart upon your bed. What's that? What do you mean meditate in your heart upon your bed? You need to speak 
the truth that you know and you need to act on it. Rather than living by lies, rather than living by your feelings, rather than pursuing me because of your emotions, meditate and think about what you know to be true. The sixth imperative, end of verse four, be still. Be silent. The Hebrew idea is you need to wail over your sin and be silent because of your sin before a holy God. You need to stop your sin. You need to put your hand over your mouth and you need to to tremble before a holy God. I mean, David is rebuking his enemies. He's not wimpy. He's not refusing confrontation because he doesn't like it. He's telling them they need to repent. The final, the final command, look at it in verse 5. Offer, this uh, this is the sixth command, offer the sacrifices of righteousness. What does that mean? Enemies, God wants your heart. He wants your heart. God wants right worship, not your rituals of worship. God wants your joyful heart in worship, not your self-achieved checklist that you've been to worship. So you need to come and, and worship God with the right sacrifices that he wants. And then the final command at the end of verse five, trust in the Lord, repent and believe. That's what David is saying. Repent and believe, trust the Lord, hope in him. Now, don't miss, again, the context of what's going on. David is the king. There are men of rank who are ridiculing him. They're slandering him. They're accusing him. They are pursuing him. And David is rebuking them. Now, let me turn this a little bit. Let me turn this. Reproofs into positive marks of the godly man. What what does God want? And maybe we can apply this to us for a minute. What does God want for the godly man as we persevere through hard times in life? Number one, know that God distinguishes the man who is intimate with God. You see in verse three, God has set apart the godly man. Do you see that there? Have you ever heard of the Hasidic Jews? Well, that word Hasidic comes from the Hebrew word godly right here in verse 3. They're pious. God sets aside the pious, the godly one, fully devoted to him for God's own use. Second, God also hears when you call. He hears when you call. A third way that we could apply this is that you and I ought to tremble in holy fear and in anger. Guarding us lest we sin. Tremble in holy fear. Tremble in holy anger. Not not being angry at other people. That's not the point. But guarding lest our anger does lead us into sin. That's the point. We need to do the heart-searching work And know that you cannot hide your motives from God. Even what happens on the bed. That's what he says here. Tremble. Tremble on your bed. Even in the quiet places of your own home. You can't hide from God. 
Number five, we ought to be still before the holy God of universal power. David says, be still, tremble before God. Let your words be few, Ecclesiastes 5 puts it. We ought to worship God genuinely from the heart, aiming always to please our God. We ought to obediently trust and happily submit to God. Now, I'm just taking the negative rebukes and just turning them positive so that we could learn some lessons for how we are to persevere through the troubles of life. Now, here's what I find so remarkable about this song. You can't, if you hear anything, hear this. David has enemies and he's rebuking them. Nowhere in the psalm do we learn that God changes his situation. God doesn't change it. We we, we do not see the situation of David changing. But through it all, God changed David as he was persevering through the suffering. Maybe sometimes in your life, you might feel stressed out. You might feel overwhelmed. People might be pursuing you and you're thinking, this is too much to handle. And maybe you want God to take it away, but he doesn't. God doesn't change your circumstances sometimes, but he'll change you while you're going through the circumstances. And we call that sanctification. We call that Christian growth. We're going to see this over and over and over in the Psalms. Situations may not change, but the heart of the man of God does change. Meaning we trust God more. We give thanks to God more. We worship him more, even in the trouble. We need perseverance. And that's what David does. He's persevering while he's rebuking the enemies. So when you feel stressed out, when you feel overwhelmed, when life is just too much to bear, number one, pray. You need to pray. Number two, you need perseverance. Number three, don't miss this. We need perspective. Now, I'm going to summarize the next five minutes of my preaching in this one line. What do you need by way of perspective? What do you mean, Jeff? In the stressful season of life, you need greater glimpses of the glory of God. Why? Because when you're stressed out, what are you doing? You're thinking, I can't handle this. I can't. We need to see the glory and the bigness and the greatness and the power of God and the wisdom of God and the providence of God and the knowledge of God and the care of God. We need the glory of God. So what kind of perspective do we need? What do you mean? Number one, forget pragmatics. Verse six, David says, you know, many are saying, Who is going to show us any good? Can I give you sort of a modern rendition of this? What's in it for me? What's in it for me? Many of my persecutors are after me because they want to know what's in it for me. 
The real problem is that they think that their worship of God is of their own personal benefit and their own personal goodness and their own personal elevation. What's God going to do for me so that I feel better about myself? I mean, the pragmatic edge is everywhere today, isn't it? What's in it for me? What can I get out of it? Show me the personal benefit. David is acknowledging many of my enemies are saying, well, what's in it for me? Show me good. You know what we need to acknowledge? Pragmatics will inevitably lead astray from biblical truth. What's in it for me? The quick result what, what can I get to sort of feel better about myself and get the intended results that I want? If, if that is the driving motive, whether it's how to do church or how to evangelize or how to parent or whatever, it's going to inevitably lead astray. What we need is to live not by pragmatism, but by this thinking. What is most for the glory of God? And that might be the hard way but it's the best way. It's the best way. So we, we have to forget pragmatics. The proper perspective is there's many who are saying, who's going to show me good? What's in it for me? Number two, we need to behold, you see it in your outline, we need to behold God's glory. Oh, I, I love David's prayer here. Verse six, lift up the light of your face or your countenance upon us, O Lord. Literally, it's the, uh, God, I want you to shine your face upon me. It's the language of the priestly blessing from Numbers chapter 6. O Lord, will, will you show me more of your presence? God, will you show me more of your love? God, will you show me the light of your providence? How you're working every situation for good. Oh God, will you show me the light of your promises that I will hold them and stand on them and feed on them. You say, well, Jeff, how, how do I do that? I mean, how, how do, how do we, and in your outline right here, how do you behold God's glory? Number one, pursue greater nearness with God. I've made a little personal resolve in my life. Just it works for me. It helps me that before I meet with others, I meet with the Lord. But before I talk with others, I'm going to talk with the Lord. If, if I'm not with the Lord first, you don't want to be around me. Because I need to be with the Lord. I need to be cleansed in His Word. I need to confess my sin. I, I need to be refreshed and renewed and brought before the, the holiness of God. I, I need to, to pursue nearness with God. And, and another way that we can pursue the glory of God is to cling to the promises of God. The promises of God. There's so many hundreds in the Bible, hundreds of them. You can calm your soul with intimate communion with God. Public worship, private worship, family worship, personal worship, commune with God. 
Another way that we can have perspective, let's just continue on here, not only, number one, by forgetting pragmatics and beholding God's glory, but third, we got to rest in divine joy. Why? Look at verse 7. You have put gladness in my heart more than when grain and new wine abound. What's that? Well, the hearts of the enemies are full of plotting. But David says, God, you filled my heart with joy. Only a believer can say that. Can you say that today? God, you have put joy in my heart. Now, if you need to be reminded, can I tell you how God has done that? 2 Corinthians 5. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. All these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. That God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting your trespasses against you. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you to be reconciled to God, for God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Has God put that gospel joy in your heart? That's the joy that that David is referring to. Yes, my enemies are plotting against me, but God, you've given salvation joy in my heart. So the perspective, forget pragmatism, behold God's glory, rest in divine joy. Praise God for this joy. If you don't have this joy, Now is the night for you to be reconciled to this God. And then finally, the the final perspective, go to sleep. Sleep well, because you trust in God. Verse 8, in peace I will lie down, I will sleep for you alone. O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. So I suppose if we could take the whole song right here of Psalm 4, and we bring it together, do you know what David is doing? In the evening, when David has all the pressures of life, he's laying his head on the pillow of the sovereignty of God. God is in control. That God is involved in my life. That that God is absolute. And that God is good. Yes, I know that you're in control. I know that you're involved. I know that you're absolute. And I know that you are good. No pillow is so soft as the divine promises of God. No blankets are so warm as the sure union that you have with Christ. Lean upon him and his word. And he'll carry you through the stressful and the overwhelming times of life. It really is true. This is theology for all of life. I mean, do you see how a sovereignty of God theology is so practical that it carries you through the difficult times of being stressed out? God cares. God cares. Look in your outline, if you would. I printed the words 
of a song, and we, I, I suppose we could have sang it earlier, but we do it here at church. It's called I Run to Christ. It was just written a number of years ago by Chris Anderson. Now, I'm going to read these. Follow with me. And, and these are helpful when you feel overwhelmed. Listen to these words. I run to Christ when chased by fear, and I find a refuge sure. Believe in me, his voice I hear, his words and wounds secure. I run to Christ when torn by grief and find abundant peace. I too had tears. He gently speaks, thus joy and sorrow meet. I run to Christ when worn by life and find my soul refreshed. Come unto me, he calls through strife. Fatigue gives way to rest. I run to Christ when vexed by hell and find a mighty arm. The devil flees, the scriptures tell. He roars but cannot harm. I run to Christ when stalked by sin and find a sure escape. Deliver me, I cry to him. Temptation yields to grace. I run to Christ when plagued by shame and find my one defense. I bore God's wrath. He pleads my case, my advocate and friend. This is truly the strength, isn't it? For the stress out. May the Lord help us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. The time around Psalm 4, what a needed and helpful reminder. God, would you grant help? Even for the brethren here in this room, maybe many of us are battling with stress. We feel overwhelmed. We feel like like life is just being taken from us. We don't know where to go. We need prayer. We need perseverance. We need perspective. Write your perfect, sufficient, powerful truth upon our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.